From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. This is an historic time. This is going to be a multi-year fight. Why is it taking so long to get a screening test? It is not a hoax. It is real. Something that we have never experienced before. Wash hands, wash hands, wash hands. I mean, you're the scientist. You're going to have to tell me. (laughs) Welcome, welcome to Science Rules Coronavirus Edition. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the series that brings you the latest analysis and the science of this pandemic to keep you informed, prepared, and calm. We are still all in this together, my friends. As of early Monday, more than 12 million people in the U.S. have been infected with the coronavirus, with more than a million new infections in the last week and more than a quarter of a million deaths since January. As the New York Times pointed out, that's roughly the population of Richmond, Virginia, or Fort Wayne, Indiana, or St. Petersburg, Florida, Madison, Wisconsin, Scottsdale, Arizona, Reno, Nevada, Buffalo, New York. And you get the grim picture, people. And in case someone tells you, oh, everyone else is handling this just as poorly as we are. (laughs) That's great. That's also more than 18% of all COVID-related deaths worldwide, far more than our proportional share. The U.S. kind of sucks at this. With a new president coming into office in January, good news about vaccines is on the way and bad news about infection surges before the holidays. There's a lot to take in right now. Here to help explain it all is none other than Dr. Atul Gawande. He's a surgeon, author of books like The Checklist Manifesto and Being Mortal. And for us today, he is a member of President-elect Joe Biden's new COVID-19 advisory board. Dr. Atul Gawande, welcome to Science Rules Coronavirus Edition. May I call you Atul? Yes, I was going to say, I'm, I'm a huge fan, Bill, and uh, I look forward to this podcast and the chance to meet you. Oh, wow, really? So this is electronic meeting, everybody. We are it is. fantastically distant. But everybody wonders about the advisory board. How do you guys meet? Is it virtual? Do you go to a room? Do you get tested? Are you wearing masks? Go ahead. It's entirely virtual. And it's 13 really great people from a wide range of backgrounds, from the person, Rick Bright, who got fired from BARDA, the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development, uh, which is the research agency that was behind vaccines. And and Rick Bright, you know, got in trouble for telling the truth and saying hydroxychloroquine uh, wasn't going to be something that they recommended spending an enormous amount of money on because the data wasn't there. Well, this is a group of folks who are coming from 
all kinds of backgrounds, healthcare scientists and and public health and and so on. And I just feel really lucky to be among them. And you know, we are uh, plugging into a transition, which is a sort of fake transition, not a fake transition, but it's it's a transition in transition. We we don't have an administration that has admitted yet that we can meet with agency officials to be ready on January 20. I am a taxpayer and citizen. I'm a voter. What in the world is going on? So there was a coronavirus task force. Did they accomplish much of anything? And then are you able to speak with them and so on? Well, there are uh, important things that career scientists everywhere from the CDC to the FDA to BARDA, to the NIH, National Institutes of Health, have been doing. That ranges from uh, driving discoveries around testing, driving basic facts and understanding about the virus, um, public health advice and guidance, and then being part of creating and driving new vaccines and, and tests and therapeutics. All of those people, there are many of them, they've been hard at work. But uh, there is a political administration that decides are we supporting those people? Do we put them forward? And a lot of the public health 101 basics are you put the scientists forward, and when the facts aren't politically convenient, you, um, uh, you nonetheless recognize the scientists and doctors and, and, uh, wow. and key experts and, and let them come forward. And, and that's, that's been a challenge, as you know. Um, a challenge. Let's go with that. <laughs> a challenge. I mean, put roughly, I got a couple of questions, but put roughly, is anything going to happen before January 20th? Well, I fully believe it will, but it is extraordinary. I did an interview the other day where uh, Dr. Fauci was on, and then I followed, and that was the only interaction. That's the closest kind of interaction we're allowed to have at present. The reality is there's some really fundamental things that need to happen right now. Um, we have uh, amazing news as of today that we now have three effective vaccines, uh, according to preliminary data from the clinical trials. Um, so can you list them and yes. then I have a follow-up? Sure. Go ahead. Um, so number one is the Pfizer uh, BioNTech mRNA-based vaccine. That vaccine trial has now been completed and they've submitted their data to the FDA for approval. And they found 95% effectiveness in preventing infections of, from the coronavirus. Now, then Moderna has also got an mRNA-based vaccine. And they also had a 95% effectiveness, which is re a remarkably high level of effectiveness. And let's hope that holds up in the months to come as they continue to follow these folks. How does that, I mean, I think we all have an intuition how it compares to a, uh, an influenza vac vaccine, which is like 50% effective. Mm -hmm. How does that compare to polio vaccine, for example? Yeah, I don't have the numbers on the vaccine levels that are between there, but this is among the highest, right? So yeah, you, you've rightly got the, the range. The flu vaccine can be as low as 25% effectiveness in a given year, often around 50%. Then you will have uh, vaccines like the measles vaccine, and uh, Ebola was around 90%. Mm -hmm. uh, this one's coming in at around 95%. The critical number that I keep in my mind is that if we have 50% um, effectiveness, we're sort of okay with that. If we had 70% effectiveness, we know we are on a path that suggests that you could really suppress the uh, spread substantially. 95% effectiveness sort of beyond the 
Almost magical. Yeah, it's beyond the aspirations that you hope for. And, and, you know, let's see how this comes out. But that brings up the third vaccine. So the third one is from AstraZeneca and Oxford um, University. And that one is an adenovirus-based vaccine. So what they're reporting, and again, we don't have the papers. This is all from press releases. But so far, the, you know, in this pandemic, what people have claimed in the press releases is held up in what they've actually then reported out in data. But um, what they showed was a, an average of 70% effectiveness for their vaccine. Now, this turned out to be two different dose regimens. Mm-hmm. All of the vaccines are two-shot regimens. You start with an initial uh, dose, and then you get a booster shot, usually around a, a month afterwards. So the Oxford vaccine, they tried an initial dose that was a full dose, followed by a full dose at one month, and that was a 62% effectiveness. The uh, other one was a half dose to start with, and then followed by a full dose. And interestingly, that was a 90% effectiveness. Speaking of reactions and the booster and all this, how long does the vaccine, do we think, remain effective? Is it going to be years? Is it going to be the rest of your life? Well, And then that's got to affect planning and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, the honest answer is we don't know, except there has been some recent reports in the last two, three weeks, uh, a, you know, a paper came out in particular showing that there is a long lasting um, immune response for the vast majority of people who were infected with um, the virus in the early part of the pandemic. There clearly are people whose immune response does not stick because there are some people who get reinfected, but that's a very small number of people. It's been rare. Um, And so that points to so far indications that um, this is likely to be long lasting and we'll know we'll know over time it seems unlikely that you'd need to have yearly shots it may be it's likely to be many years but it but it certainly seems to be the case that this could be lasting through the through the next year or more let's say we've got this vaccine we are one of these three companies we're Pfizer Moderna we're AstraZeneca And and I'm going to say we're three for three on trials. There are nine trials that are that'll be coming out in the next two, three months. So it bodes well. So many of them put their eggs in the spike basket, so to speak. Um, And (laughs) the spike protein, the spike protein basket, the, the protein that gets the virus into your cells. And, you know, all of the effort to attack the virus was to go after the spike protein. And this is suggesting that's that's a good strategy. Um, and so there are multiple vaccines that are based that way. Um, and that is very promising for a large supply of vaccine from when different you say manufacturers. Based that way, this is a new type of vaccine, but many people are pursuing this type. Yeah. So right. let me break that down. Yes, you have um, uh, you have the mRNA based vaccines where you're delivering genetic material into the cells, you know, people cells to create the protein, which creates the antibody response. You have a second version, which is it's an adenovirus that contains the protein, uh, contains the genetic material, and it um, is the vehicle to trigger the response. And then you have other vaccines where they're actually delivering the protein subunits of the of the spike protein itself. And so more these, conventional, even that's a bit more conventional, but it's not. It's you know, as conventional and, and cowpox, yeah, yeah, like the old, the really conventional ones, and the Chinese have been um, creating 
uh, a vaccine along these lines is what's called an inactivated virus, yeah. uh, you know, a, a killed virus vaccine where you take the virus and disable it and then inject people with that virus itself. So let me ask you this. Everybody talks about emergency use authorization. All right, that sounds like some emergency use. Let's go, man. Let's go. Let's go. But you have to apply for that and you have to what do you have to fill out 90 pages of documents with everybody's resume and stuff? <laughs> Why isn't that uh, a snap of the fingers? Well, in in the scheme of development, it actually is sort of extraordinary how fast emergency authorizations have come and what the FDA has been clear about is there is um, a set of standards they made for what they want these uh, vaccines trials to show. Number one, they wanted it to show that you have a 50% effectiveness, and that means that you have reduced the likelihood if you have the vaccine that someone gets uh, infected. They also want to show that you have at least a 50% reduction in, the, in people getting serious illness, like hospitalization because of the, uh, when you get the vaccine. So those are two standards that they wanted to set. Then they want to know, is it safe? And, you know, we have data showing that there's effectiveness, but you need to follow people long enough to see if it's safe. And they said, we want to know that the average, the median person in the trial is at least two months out from their second dose to confirm that there hasn't been unexpected, you know, did it induce a a cytokine storm by itself? Did it have any um, any bad effects? So far, the preliminary results are that they have been mild adverse events. There haven't been hospitalizations associated with it. That's the next hurdle to get approved, which is why the first trials getting the point that they're submitting the EUA means it might be a couple of weeks, as short as a week or two, to go through all the data they've submitted, question the statistics, you name it, because they've been following along. They're not just showing up. They've been they've been following along reading the papers as they're published. Yeah, there's critical things though. Like you got to double check the statistics. You got to, you know, you want to run this data because look at this. This is going to be 162 people are going to be the basis for distributing these vaccines to hundreds of millions of people. Now, now the full approval won't come until you see that they get past 6 months and a year. To these criteria are met. Yeah, to, to meet these criteria in the long run. But but it'll be moving before then. Let's just talk some more about me. <laughs> me, me, me. <laughs> when am I going to be able to get a vaccine? Man, so this is a real, uh, this is part of the reason we need that transition to happen. Right now, um, Operation Warp Speed is not public with uh, all of the information about who gets what. So what we know so far is the original target was 300 million doses were to be prepared by the end of the year. They came in at, you know, uh, Pfizer will have enough for somewhere between 10 and 20 million people, and Moderna will have 10 million people covered. So why did they, why did, why is it so, so much less than what they had hoped to achieve? Are they short of raw ingredients? Is there difficulties in the bioreactors that you need to create, hmm. you, you need to uh, generate the volumes? Um, and so production um, and what the challenges are in production and why is, is information number one. Number two, are there bottlenecks in the supply chain of whether it's dry ice for the mm. Pfizer vaccine or, um, or it's enough syringes and gloves mm. and masks for the vaccinators? Then the third one is, um, what are the allocations? Uh, there are various 
you know, high-minded bodies. And I think the National Academy of Sciences uh, recommendations have gotten the most attention about who should get these vaccines in what order. So that yeah, yeah. that has generally here, been man. right. That has generally been high uh, the the high risk healthcare workers and first responders, police, firemen, etc., nursing home staff and nursing home residents, because those are the highest risk for both getting the disease and dying from it. And then on based on chronic illness and perhaps on age, different countries are doing different things. Uh, in Britain, they've really emphasized age as the basis for distribution. So after healthcare workers and nursing homes, it is uh, age 80 and up, and then 75 and up, and 70 and up, and they don't bring in people on chemotherapy and other things like that until they've gotten to all of the 65-year-olds and up. And so there's different approaches different countries have taken. We actually don't know what the approach the current administration's recommending. I hope they will uh, bring that out soon because um, states need to know how to how to gear up distribution and they are right now, every state's coming up with its own way. And that's going to be very challenging because Bill Nye is going to be like, wait, why, why am I not first? That's right. And we have to be super transparent. You know, 20 million people or 30 million people will mean 10% of the population can get it. And 90% can't for a few months to come. And imagine you're living, you're living in a lower middle income world. And you're saying, wait a minute, the United States is and and Europe have bought up all of the supply. How when's it going to get to us? That's why that's one of the reasons the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine is so important. Number one, it's a vaccine that's a tenth the price of the others. It's about two dollars and fifty cents a dose instead of twenty to thirty to forty dollars a dose, depending on the others. And secondly, um, they've already committed that forty percent of the supply is going into a uh, a WHO led vaccine distribution facility called Covax. We'll be back right after this. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. (laughs) 
so here we're in the United States. Right? Yes. We have this tremendous And you're problem. waiting for your vaccine. <laughs> well, that's just that. We have this, to me, a tremendous problem, which I will writ large, anti-science. Hmm. Where And you've spoken about anti-science quite a bit, right? And um, there's a study that came out uh, not too long ago that says living through an epidemic when you're an adolescent affects how you feel about science or your trust in science the rest of your life. And it doesn't look good. The study doesn't look good. I mean, it's, I've made it my life's work, people, for adolescents to embrace science as the best idea humans have ever had so that we can have technology, clean water, access to the Internet, and renewable electricity for everybody on Earth, raise the standard of living with women and girls. Okay, how do you account for this? How is it that, I guess it's part of anti-vaxxers writ large. Well, But what is with the mistrust of science in the world's most influential culture that got here because of technological innovation? Well, first of all, thank you and your team for sending me the paper. I hadn't seen it, and I'm. this is an area I've looked into, and I'm extremely you fascinated about it. You spoke Caltech about it, right? And I got to speak at a Caltech graduation about mistrust in science. But what this paper showed is worth parsing a little bit. First of all, they looked not just across the United States, but across many countries, uh, all of Europe. And, uh, and what they found was that there was an effect that seemed to be associated based on how old you were in a, as an adolescent and what epidemic you were exposed to. And the findings were very nuanced. Uh, science, your trust in science uh, did not get affected, that if you were exposed during the epidemics, there was a slight um, and non-significant increase in trust in science, an increase in trust in healthcare figures like doctors and nurses. But trust in scientists, so this is the trust in you know, Dr. Fauci versus trust in the scientific enterprise creating the vaccines, that trust in the individual went down for individual scientists, uh, for people who had been exposed to significant epidemics. I, Is I find that- Is this just grownups? You know, kids with the, their relationship to grownups, just not trusting people. Because, you know, when you're an adolescent, you feel, of course, I've grown out of it. You feel like a know-it-all. I, I mean, I, I, I'm way past that. No, I'm kidding, people. I found it a really fascinating, but I still think incomplete picture. Mm -hmm. um, there's a paper that they, they, they cited in, in there by someone named Goshat, who looked at survey data from 1974 to 2010, where people have been asked about their trust in doctors, scientists, and in science for, you know, close to 50 years. And what they found is a larger cultural thing going on. So if you went back to the early 1970s, the um, people with higher education had more trust in science and scientists than people with low education. And conservatives had higher trust in science and scientists than those who were liberal. Um, those things have reversed over time. Wow. Conservatives with the highest levels of education, have now the lowest levels of trust in scientists. Everybody, by the way, their overall trust in scientists has gone down. Um, and the conservatives are now no longer the ones who have the highest trust in scientists. That has fallen. And interestingly, those without a college education have more trust now in scientists than in college education. So, I think there's something deeper going on, and it's hard just from an intuitive perspective to say, again, it's hypothesis-driven, but 
I'm not certain that it could just be the epidemic you were exposed to in that time. I think there's a deeper cultural thing going on. And part of it... Is it decade related? Like, is this a new thing that wasn't true in my parents' generation, for example? Well, so there was one of the things that that, um, papers have looked at is, for example, you know, was this about Vietnam or was this about the Reagan era? And, And was it about economic ups and downs? And there's just been this steady erosion of overall trust in scientists and in experts generally uh, that has happened from the Vietnam era onward. It has not budged with the different, you know, people in power or the economics. It just keeps going down and it is eroding more for um, in political ways that, uh, that is there, but it's not really entirely political because, you know, if, if you go through it and you say, Anti-vaxxers are not don't tend to be you know cut across the the liberal conservative divide. Tend to be highly educated. Anti-GMO genetic genetic genetically modified crops. Oh, yes, we've done a whole show. We did an hour. Yeah, uh, folks will will argue it's uh, harmful, but on balance, the evidence is it's been beneficial in in measurable ways. It's, we're feeding seven point eight billion people. We used to feed one and a half. Right, or yeah. climate change is not happening. That's ideologically the other way. Anti-GMO tends to be more liberal. So, you know, I think what happens is uh, there's two really interesting things going on. First of all, across all of time, we resist when um, an authority suggests uh, a belief that clashes with your intuitions, especially if it means that you have to change your own actions. Um, And, you know, a lot of the places where science comes into the fray is where it's forcing you to think about doing something different from what you want to do, whether that's how we handle energy or how we wear a mask. Second, however, which is the really interesting thing is that the more educated people are, the more likely they are to challenge scientists. And it's not, it's no longer about science versus religion. It's about whether the scientific source you have is one that you trust. And I think the interesting thing is that as people do get more educated about the scientific process with more education, but they also become more individualistic and more ideological, more more committed to certain bents in their, what actions they think are the right ones. And so you start using the science to back it up rather than really think like a scientist. You know, the allegiance to building knowledge and to explaining the universe through testing and observation is still hard for everybody to do, scientists included. So let me ask you this. You made a reference to mask mandates or wearing (laughs) masks. Uh, Do you have a personal feeling? I mean, I certainly have a personal feeling, and I claim it's data-based, but how do you feel about wearing masks? Well, I came out very early um, behind wearing masks, and that was very data-driven, but in a funny way. Basically, I looked at and published an article in the New Yorker looking at what what was working in Asia. And basically you had places like Singapore, Hong Kong, where the hospitals did not become the source of spread. And one of the core things they were doing was asking all of the staff and patients to wear a mask in the hospital. In my hospital, we weren't doing that. Um, And I wrote the article saying that there's every indication that we should follow the Asian model. We were one of the countries where we really did not have our hospitals become a a driving source of spread. And in late March, the hospitals really made it a universal expectation that the masks would be worn. And then applying that beyond the hospital has been controversial, um, but more and more data has backed it. And there's good evidence that mandates are uh, associated with 
better results on the... But that's so-called common sense, people. That cannot be rocket surgery. Well, but common sense <laughs> isn't always right. The, 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 here's, here's the thing I don't think people are thinking through, which is in, spa- in places where people really are against masks and there hasn't, they haven't got the level of trust in the scientists who are speaking, a mandate won't necessarily get everybody to wear masks. Um, you know, I have my daughter in North Carolina where the governor has made a mask mandate, and, uh, but it's, become, it's been highly politicized with a conservative legislature that has been fiercely against it. Um, my daughter is, has, as part of her job, working with the counties to get them to enforce the mask mandates. And the police are like, if I did that, we, we have to arrest everybody. <laughs> you know, yeah. that the, the mandate is, is not magic. You need to, you need to build a consistent belief in, in this mattering. As the infections rise, it's really important to understand 80% of the country wears a mask. Now, could they be wearing it better? Could they wear it over their nose? Could they make sure they're wearing it indoors? Yes. But that includes 75% of Republicans are wearing masks. We do have a vocal anti-mask population in, in corners of the world, but even then it's, it's, it's a minority. All right. Let me ask you this. If you were king of the forest, is there something or some things you would tell everybody to do? Well, I would say, and I, I get this from talking to a lot of people in different parts of the country, the single most important tool we have is communication. And we should do a podcast. We should do a podcast. That's it. And the single most important thing I would, if I were king of the forest, is I would put the CDC public health experts forward and have them talk. I would put the scientists and public health people forward and, and back their facts. Now, I can take the facts and then decide to say, in the light of those facts, I think X versus Y if I'm the king. You know, it, the scientists don't supply the values. They supply the data. And then we as citizens and the leaders need to determine what we do with that data. But the question of do the masks work, the masks work. Is there some things that you would recommend we do to stay safe during the holidays? I think the most basic one is that anybody from outside your household that expands the number of people inside your house or inside a closed space is going to be risky right now. And it's, it's just the math. We have 4 million people at least who are actively infected in the country right now. And therefore, four million. we have 4 million actively infected. Half of them do not know it and have no symptoms. Another chunk are people who just have sniffles as far as they know and don't think they have it. Now, you take 10 people around a dinner table and, you know, north of 4 million people, we're talking about anywhere from 10% likelihood to 40% likelihood, someone around that table or on, in the airport on your way there or yeah. in the train station or in the bus are going to turn out to be infected and infect you. And then that, that puts you at risk to infect everybody else. We need to stop this spread. And unfortunately, as one doctor put it, having a happy Thanksgiving would mean an extremely sad Christmas for the country uh, right now. So the single most important thing we can do is limit the number of people that we're gathering with. Second is if you, those you do gather with that are outside your household, please, I hope you've quarantined uh, in advance. Ideally also 
can get a test, not easy at the moment because tests are now starting to back up. Uh, and then if you're getting together, do it with a mask. Ideally, the meal, if that can be something that isn't necessarily the thing you all gather to do, but make a different Thanksgiving tradition this year. There's many ways to think to think about this. And, and eating outdoors is clearly massively safer. It's a little bit like talking about sex uh, in the early days of HIV. We know people are going to do it. There are ways to do it safer. <laughs> and let's do that. Let's be safe out there, everybody. Well, this is a really important final point here is the vaccines are uh, now that news means there is a light at the end of the tunnel. That tunnel, you know, the Operation Warp Speed people on the press at least have said, we haven't heard about it directly in the transition, that May, June would be when we are getting, have gotten to the majority of Americans with vaccination. That is an endpoint. So now let's get through that tunnel with as many people alive and doing well as you can. Because imagine if you have a family member or you in the ICU the month before the vaccine could have gotten there. Missed it by that much, yeah. And there will be stories. And when you have this many people infected, everybody's gonna know someone or know someone who knew someone who was tragically affected by this virus. But we can do this, everybody. Wear a mask, social distance, wash your hands. Thank you so much, Atul. Thank you. Our guest today has been Dr. Atul Gawande, surgeon, author, and member of the President-elect Joe Biden's COVID-19 Advisory Board. And one more thing before we go, we have holiday merch, everybody. Send your Science Rules Beaker glasses to all your friends, risk-free. You can find the perfect gift for your science-minded friends and family at podswag.com slash science rules. I'm Bill Nye and my friends, this is a pandemic worse than ever. We're all in this together. So more than ever, science rules. And if you like science rules, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out. It helps us learn what you want to listen to. It helps other people learn about the show. So thank you. Science Rules Coronavirus Edition is produced by Harry Huggins and Corey S. Powell. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. Our engineer is Louise Fleming, who also mixed this episode. Josephine Martiran is our executive producer. Special thanks to Casey Hofford. And remember, at Stitcher and all around the world, science rules. Three more things, you guys. Wear a mask, get tested, and avoid indoor gatherings. Stitcher. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions.